Father in heaven, we come to you this morning longing for a word from you. Lord, we just want to open our hearts. We want to give you full permission to take away the distractions, to take away anything that is keeping us from hearing your voice this morning. Jesus, we don't want to just go on about business as usual, all the while missing the incredible power that you have promised us again and again in Scripture. So today, we ask that your word would speak to us in real and living ways and that it would transform our hearts and minds. We give you full permission. Touch our hearts. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. My mom was little. She's about five years of age. She had an obsession with keys. In fact, she had a big key ring and she would go around her yard or around town or different places and somehow she kept finding keys and she'd add them to her collection. She would collect keys everywhere she went. My mom would find keys and she would collect them until pretty soon she had a good sized key ring as a five-year-old of keys that she had collected. Well, one day my mom was out playing in the front yard. The neighbor's uh, had a, either a babysitter or maybe the grandma was over v- watching the neighbor's kids. And the neighbor lady had gone across the street. When she came back across the street, she walked up to the front door of her house and she went to open the front door of her house. And my mom's watching this all along. As she opens the front door of her house, it's locked. It won't open. And she's getting a little frantic. She goes around and tries the other doors of the house. She's not able to get in. And she comes out to the front, and my mom goes over to her. She had gone inside the house first, and she had gone to her room, and she had grabbed out that set of keys. And her little five-year-old mind said, hey, I have a set of keys. She doesn't have a key to get into her house. Maybe I have the key to the front door of her house. So she grabbed out her key ring. She went over to this lady who's trying to get in the front door of the house, and she says, here, let me help you. The lady looks at her like, why would you have a key to the front door of my house? But she's going through the keys and she tries one key, no, it didn't fit. She tries another key, no, it didn't fit. On and on until suddenly she gets to one key and it, it goes in. And it turns. And it opens the front door of the lady's house. <laughs> the lady looked at her and said, why do you have those keys? She said, I just collect keys. My mom had the key that would open the front door of her neighbor's house. She collected keys, all kinds of keys, from car keys to house keys. And today we're going to look at the Church of Revelation, which tells us about a key that you and I can use, a key that is available to each and every one of us, a key that you do not want to miss. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that church of brotherly love, the church that was in a city that was founded by a king who had a brother who he loved his brother. And he was known as Philadelphus because he had this brotherly love for his other king who was a brother. That's why this city was named Philadelphia. The church of Philadelphia was on a volcanic plateau, interestingly enough. And it, wasn't, it was one of the younger of the seven churches, cities that we study. It was one of the last to come into existence as a city. And in the year 17 AD, because it was founded on this volcano, 
it actually had a massive earthquake that nearly destroyed the entire city. But they banded together like a city of brotherly love and they rebuilt their city. So as we read this, and as, especially as we see the promise to this city, it's important to note that they were a city who had experienced earth-shattering ex- earthquake that had, that had de- nearly demolished the city. The verse continues in verse 7. These things says, He who is holy, He who is true. Now when it says, He who is true here, there's two different kinds of truth when you look at the Greek words referring to truth. And this one is specifically referring to He who is real, He who is authentic. It's not talking about knowledge, but it's talking about authenticity, about the realness. He who is the real deal. Jesus shows up and he says, I am the truth. I am he who is holy and I am he who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door. Jesus says, I have a key, and I have opened this door, and I have opened it for you. And not only that, but no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. We looked last week at how this time period that this represents in prophetic history from about 1750 until the year 1844, estimates of this this prophetic time period, represents a time where suddenly the Christian church recognized that something had gone tragically wrong for them. They had become focused inward once again. Though they had had the Protestant Reformation, though these wonderful things had happened in the 16th century, the 17th century, once again they had become filled with tradition, and that tradition had led them to be selfish, self-focused, and they were no longer on a mission to reach the world. We talked last week about how at this time, there were only 17 missionary stations around the entire world, and those were established by the Moravian Christians. But hear this promise that those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And we looked last week at the promise in Psalm 86.9 that from every nation, tongue, and people, there will be a group who comes together to worship God. This church began to see this and to see the urgency of the times that they were living in and to recognize that they were to take the message to the world. But they were to do it in the power of the one who holds the keys of David, who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one can open. Now what is this talking about? What is this key of David that Jesus is saying that he has? If you notice there in your Bible, some Bibles will have that in italics, noting that this is actually quoting from the Old Testament. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 20. Actually, we'll go to Isaiah chapter 22, I believe it is. Here is where Jesus is actually quoting from in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 22, and we'll go to verse 20. Then it shall be that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. 
I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So here, this is talking about in the time of Hezekiah that there would be a vicegerent or a steward by the name of Eliakim who would be over Jerusalem. And then look at verse 22. Here's where it's quoting from in Revelation chapter 3. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one will shut. And he will shut and no one will open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. I'll put on Eliakim the key of the house of David. I'll give him the key to the storehouse, to the treasures. I'm going to give Eliakim special honor and authority in my kingdom. Hezekiah put Eliakim as his steward, and he had the authority we later see in chapter 36, where he was the one who went, went out to meet the invading kings and who went to make, uh, uh, try to make treaties with them. It didn't always work. But he was the one who had this authority. He had the key to the riches of the kingdom. He was the one who, next to the king, really had the most authority in the kingdom of Israel. Now, Eliakim we read here, is to replace somebody. You notice how it said specifically, I'm going to put your robe on him. I'm going to put your belt on him. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give your position to him. Now, who is it talking about that he was going to give his position to him? Go back with me to verse 15, where it records who the steward was before Eliakim. This is really crucial. Verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to the steward, to Shebna, who is over the house. So you see here that Shebna was the one who previously was over the house of Israel. Go to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock? Now we don't know the story of Shebna, We don't know much about him, but here we have the picture that he is a steward. He has this authority. He's the one who has the key of David at this point. He's the one who would have highest authority next to King Hezekiah at this point in Israel. And he's doing something. What is he doing? It's questioning him, saying, why is it that you have hewn out this tomb for yourself? You have engraved this tomb. And in fact, Archaeologists have actually found this very tomb that was engraved for Shebna, the steward. Here is Shebna. He must have come maybe from a a background that wasn't real uh, prestigious. Maybe he wasn't very famous. But the famous people had tombs in, in a rock. They had special burial places. And so Shebna, having the riches of being able to get to the king's storehouse, having that key of David... He took his authority and he said, I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to dig this tomb and I'm going to engrave on the rock Shebna so that people remember who I am. Shebna was trying to make a name for himself. He was using the stewardship. He'd been entrusted with the wealth of Israel. He'd been entrusted with the key of David and he was using it to establish a name for himself. He was using it to provide for his own needs. In fact, keep on reading in verse 17. It says, Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty men, and will surely seize you. 
He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots, chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. See what else he had? Shebna had made for himself some glorious chariots. As he rode around Israel as the steward who had the key of David, he wanted everybody to know how important he was. He'd made this nice chariot for himself, this glorious chariot. He had established a name for himself, trying to make himself as important as possible. And God says, I'm going to replace you. I'm going to send somebody else to be a faithful steward over the house of David. I'm going to give Eliakim in your place, your robe. I'm going to give him your authority. I'm going to place on him the key of David. So here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus shows up and he says, I am he who is holy. I am he who is true. And I am the one who has the key of David. The one who unlocks and who opens the door. Now, elsewhere in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, it also talks about him having a key and opening a door, specifically of death and of Hades. Jesus is the one who has authority of the riches of his Father in heaven to be able to be a steward of the eternal life that is inherent in God himself. He's the one who has authority to be able to bestow eternal life on us. Now, follow with me. As we think about what takes place in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked the disciples a question. He says, who do men say that I am? The disciples said, well, you know, some people say that you're the prophet Jeremiah. And some others say that you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And he says, well, but who do you say that I am? Peter always the first one to speak, always the most boisterous of the disciples, said, well, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This this is something that came to you through the Holy Spirit. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I tell you the truth on this rock, this statement that I am the Christ, the Son of God, on this rock I will build my church. And the gate of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he goes on to say this, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You see how Jesus was given authority by the Father. In fact, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew, 4, Matthew 8, 28, 18, he starts off by saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, I have the authority. But Jesus says, I give it to you. I give it to my church, the church that I'm going to form on the rock, on this realization that I am the Christ, I am the real one, I am the true one. I have the key of David, but I also give it into your hands. How do we possess this key that, that Jesus says that I am the one who has the key of David? How do we have this same key to open the doors of everlasting life to people. Go with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul says something very interesting to the Colossian church. It's later illustrated. 
in the life of Epaphras later on in the chapter. But Colossians chapter 4, in verse 2, it says, Continue earnestly in prayer. He's wrapping up his letter and he's giving them some final exhortations. And he says to them, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Be earnest about your prayers. And if, if you're having trouble being earnest about your prayers, then Continue in it with thanksgiving. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Keep awake by the purpose of thanks, through thanksgiving. Meanwhile, verse 3 continues, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Friends, God has given us access to heavenly power for a very specific purpose. He has given you and I the opportunity to pray. And to pray for very specific things. To pray that a door would be open for the Word. To pray that a door would be open for the Gospel. Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And when He told us that, He went on to say, so therefore go and make disciples of all nations, tongues, and peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus has authority. He is the steward. He's the real, authentic Son of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But He has entrusted that authority into your hands and into my hands. He says there's a world out there and it needs to hear the gospel. And Paul says if you want for the world to hear the gospel, then pray. Pray that God opens a door for the word. Pray that God opens a door so that I can speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. There Paul is. That's a bold prayer to pray, isn't it? Or to ask to be prayed. He's sitting there in chains in prison, and he says, pray that I'm able to preach to more people. Pray that there's a door open for the word here in prison that I can share the gospel with the world. Last week, we talked about William Carey. He was a young Baptist preacher who had started off as a shoe salesman, but he just had this burning impression that we have to take the gospel to the world. He'd studied geography. He learned about some people who had gone on explorations to India, and he knew that there were people out there who had never heard the name of Jesus. And this burdened his heart as he was there as a shoe uh, maker, and he was studying languages, trying to learn how he could become more efficient at being able to share about Jesus. We learned last week about he went, how he went on to become a Baptist minister. He went to a Baptist minister's convention and told them, hey, we need to fulfill the gospel commission. All authority has been given to Jesus. So let's go to the entire world. And they scoffed at him. They said, if God wants to convert, convert the heathens, then he's going to do it without us. They said, until, until you have the gift of tongues, you're not, you're not supposed to go out there. But he kept on studying languages. He kept on studying and he kept on praying until finally he found a group of people who were willing to send him out. But here's the thing. In that time period where William Carey was having this burden laid on his heart to reach the world, and he became what is known as the father of modern uh, Christian missions. He was the first Protestant missionary to really push for missions to go around the world. As William Carey had this burden on his heart, 
he began to get a group of people together to pray. They called it the United Baptist Group. As, as they would get together, they would unite in prayer saying, God, there is a world out there in need. Would you please open a door for the word? Would you open the way for us to go? And here, William Carey ended up taking his young wife and his young family over to India, not knowing how they were going to provide for themselves, not knowing how they were going to move forward. And God did open a door. And thousands came to know Jesus who would have never heard the name of Jesus except for William Carey and William Carey's group of friends who were praying earnestly for God to bring revival. Dr. A.T. Pearson, a scholar on revival, says this, There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. And the book, First Selected Messages, page 121, it says it like this, We should not expect revival except in answer to prayer. Revival always comes through prayer because this is the key. I love how it says in the book, Steps to Christ. It talks about on page 94 and 95, it says, Why should the sons and daughters of God be reluctant to pray when prayer is the key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouse where are treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence. This is the story of the Philadelphian church. This time period when they were faithful to share the gospel. When they began to have this brotherly love, this concern for the rest of the world that needed to hear the gospel. They were a church that began to pray together. John Wesley who was one of the first to begin preaching out in open fields along with George Whitfield and Charles Wesley. John Wesley started a group which was called by others at the university they were attending, the Holy Club. He and his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and a few others would get together and they would pray together. And then they would challenge each other and say, hey, how can we live out the gospel in our lives? How can we make sure that we're loving, that we're serving, that we're living our lives for Jesus? And you notice those names. Here they were, young college students just getting together to pray. And yet John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Charles Wesley all had incredibly huge impact on the Christian world in their generation. Thousands came to hear George Whitfield as he would go out in the fields and he would preach to the coal miners. Thousands would come to know Jesus who wouldn't ever have set foot inside of a church because George Whitfield was set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens when we pray. That's what happens when we exercise the privilege that Jesus has called us to. What did Jesus say in Matthew 7? He said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Do you want to see the door open? Do you want your friends, your neighbors, your family who don't know about Jesus, who don't understand the character of God like you do, do you want them to experience Jesus? Pray. What did Paul say? He said, pray for us as well that God would open a door for the Word. Prayer allows God to work in ways that he would not be able to work if we did not ask, if we did not take the time to pray. Throughout this period of the Philadelphian church with John Wesley, William Carey, again and again, we find people 
who were praying together and God opened door after door in answer to prayer. And a revival took place. In fact, several revivals took place. We call it the, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. All of these took place during the Philadelphian church during this time period when they were allowing Christ to have the authority, the one who had the key of David. But I don't know about you. In my life, sometimes I notice that my prayers can become focused on things that I'm concerned about in my own life. I mean, I'm worried about, hey, Lord, can you please help me to find those keys? Or Lord, I know this bill is coming and I'm not sure where the funds are going to be to cover it. Or Lord, I don't know what I should do about this class or this job. Or Lord, would you help so-and-so in the church who's sick? And Lord, would you help? And God does hear and answer our every prayer. God wants us to come to him with absolutely everything that's on our heart. Like Heidi prayed about, even our, I mean, Heidi shared about, even our Barbie shoes, God cares about. There's nothing too small to take to Jesus. But when I read in the New Testament, I read the prayers that were exhorted to pray. I read about the people who were praying. The things that they were praying for most was that God would open a door for the gospel so that more people could hear about the love of Jesus. And yet so often I'm most concerned about my grandma or my, and I should pray for these things. But am I praying for my neighbors? Am I praying for my coworkers? Am I praying for those who don't know Jesus? Back in Colossians chapter 4, after Paul has said, continue earnestly in prayer, pray for a door to be opened for the word. Look at the story which he tells down in verse 12. He's just sending greetings from various ones of the disciples. And he says this about one named Epaphras. He said, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. This is one of the few places where we even find the name Epaphras listed. And he is famous in the Bible for one thing. He labored fervently in prayer for the Colossians. But not only for the Colossians, look at verse 13. For I bear you wit- him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Friends, I think God is looking for Epaphras' today. We're living, as we're going to find out soon, in the time period of the Laodicean church, that church which is asleep. And God is looking for Epaphras' who are going to labor earnestly in prayer that God would strengthen us, that God would fill His church with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is going to come in answer to prayer. This is going to come as we unite together at prayer meeting, as we come together at the hour of power, as we come together in small groups at each other's houses, as we get together in conference calls, as we prayer walk this grounds together. Jesus can show up in special ways when we pray together because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's the King of kings. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Almighty. Will you and I trust and believe that He wants to hear and answer our prayers? That's what Epaphras did. That's what Paul did. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. One of my favorite prayers. These are the kind of prayers that you find the great men and women of God praying. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul explains why it is that he prays for the Ephesians specifically. 
Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I get on my knees to pray. This is the reason from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Do you see how radical of a prayer He's praying here? He's saying that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. What are the riches of Jesus' glory? He's sitting in the throne room of the entire universe, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He has all power in the entire universe. He oversees worlds. He oversees stars. He's the Creator. He's the Almighty. And here's Paul is praying, saying, according to the riches of His glory, I'm praying for you that you would be strengthened with might in the inner man through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. These are the types of prayers that Paul prays. These are the types of prayer that the apostles were praying. These are the types of prayer that Jesus prayed when He prayed for Peter, that he would not be sifted. Praying for the Holy Spirit to strengthen, to fill, to open a door for the Word. Praying for God's people to be filled up with all the fullness of God. Because what does steps to Christ say? Why should we be reluctant to pray? When prayer is the key it's, it's that key to open the door. Prayer in the hand of faith is the key to open heaven's storehouse. Wherein are treasured the boundless resources of heaven. Heaven is waiting for you and I. Will we pray? Will we believe? Will we truly seek the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Will we be like Epaphras and intercede on behalf of Laodicea? It was the 1800s. There was an orphanage in Bristol, England. In that orphanage, the children would get up each morning for breakfast. As they filed into the room one morning, they were walking up to the table. And as they walked up to the table, it was a little odd because there wasn't any food on the table. They filed up to their chairs anyway, and they began to sit around the table. And they, they kind of looked over towards the kitchen. And in the kitchen, they didn't hear any food being prepared, and they didn't smell any bread break, baking, and they, they thought to themselves, this is a little strange, I imagine. But they went ahead and sat down at the table, when suddenly the, the door to the kitchen opened up, and out came George Mueller. George Mueller, an older man by this point, said, children, children, it's time for breakfast. Let's, let's bless the food which we are about to eat this morning. He raised his hand and he began to pray. He said, Father in heaven, for this food which we are about to eat, we just want to thank you. And we praise you for providing for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine as the kids are probably peeking with one eye opening, thinking, Where's this food coming from? Why is he thanking Jesus? Has George Mueller finally lost his mind? Is, 
what is he talking about? I mean, I know we're here because he's provided for us, but look, there's no bread, there's no milk. How are we going to have breakfast? As soon as George Mueller had finished his prayer, there was a knock at the door. He opened the door, and there at the door was a baker. The baker said, Father Mueller, I, I don't know why, but this morning at about 2 a.m., I was woken up. And I just felt like God was impressing me that I needed to bake some bread for you this morning. And so I have these large trays of bread. Is, is there any way that you could use this bread today? Father Mueller said, yeah, bring it on in for breakfast. Go ahead and bring the bread in. We'll, we could use it. The baker came in with the large trays of bread and no sooner did he come in when there was another knock at the door. George Mueller went over and opened the door. And there stood the milkman. The milkman was red in the face and he said, I don't know what to do. My milk cart has broken down in front of the orphanage. It's going to be a hot day today. I don't know what I'm going to do with all these jars of milk. Can you possibly use this fresh milk for your orphans today? George Miller said, yes, of course. Just go ahead and bring the milk in. And then they brought the milk And the children had breakfast. Friends, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to believe that God hears my prayers like that. I want to believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That he has all riches. That he owns the cattle on the thousand hills. That he can provide for every need. Especially when I want to help hungry children. Especially when I want for people who haven't heard the gospel to hear the gospel. I want to believe that Jesus answers my prayer. How did George Mueller come to this type of faith? Well, it's interesting that George Mueller was actually a minister. And this is during the time period of the Philadelphian church in the early 1800s. The Philadelphian church goes from about 1750 until somewhere around the year 1844. George Mueller was a minister, and as he would go around to visit various parts of the city there in Bristol, England, he would go to visit his parishioners to see how they were doing spiritually. Now, he did have this burden for the orphans on the one hand. That was something on his heart. He did care about the orphans because this was a huge problem at the time in England. In fact, at that time, they could only house maybe be 2,000 orphans at the most at this time. But as he's there... He's going around to visit people. He says he would visit an individual who worked on an assembly line. And he would find this guy working 14 to 17 hours a day. This is a time period where you worked long hours for very little pay. There wasn't the minimum wage like we have today. It was difficult times for low-income workers. So he would sit down with a family, and he would say to the father, he'd say, so how is your walk with Jesus? How are things going with your relationship with God? Are you getting time in the Word? Are you getting time in prayer? And oftentimes the guy would say, look, I'm working 17 hours a day, 14 hours a day. I get home, I'm exhausted. I, I have to provide for my family. I don't know any other way to provide. So I'm doing what I can, but honestly, it's not going that well. Oftentimes I find in America that we're in a similar situation as we seek to provide for ourselves, as we work long hours, as we take care of our houses, little by little the busyness begins to press in on our time with God and we're no longer having that time in prayer. We're no longer having that time in the Word. This burdened 
George Mueller. As he went around to his church members, he said it was such a problem that they weren't trusting that God could provide for them. They weren't taking that time for God. He said, can't God take and provide for you from his boundless resources if you will take the extra time to get to know Jesus every day? If you take that extra time in prayer and Bible study, can't God provide for you? So he went on to say that the primary object I had in view in carrying on this work, this work for the orphans, is that it might be seen that now, in the 19th century, God is still the living God and that now, as well as thousands of years ago, he listens to the prayers of his children and helps those who trust him. That's why George Mueller went about what he did. So there he was as a minister. He got so frustrated with it that he said, you know what, I'm going to quit the ministry. No longer am I going to accept a salary, but I'm going to start an orphanage in my house and I'm going to do it by faith. He tells specifically a story about one point on December, 20, uh, December 5th, he writes in his journal, The subject of my prayer all at once became different. I was reading Psalm 81 and was particularly struck more than at any time before with verse 10 where it says, Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. I thought a few moments about these words and then was led to apply them to the case of the orphan house. It struck me that I had never asked the Lord for anything concerning it. God had given him this burden that people would learn to trust in God. God had given him this burden for these orphans. And yet he had never asked the God who says, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. He never simply asked him to provide. So George Mueller said, I'm going to go on a faith journey. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to build orphanages For these orphans, thousands and thousands of orphans there in England. I'm going to build these orphanages, but I'm not going to ask anybody for a penny. I'm not going to ask anybody for funds. I'm not going to go around raising donations. Instead, I'm going to simply ask God to provide for the orphans every step of the way. Because the promises of God are sure. Psalm 81.10 says, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And I believe that Jesus has the key of David. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has boundless riches. He is that steward who can open the door for me. So in George Mueller's lifetime, that story which I told is just one of thousands of answers to prayer where God provided for the orphans. He'd provide food for the orphans. He'd provide for somebody to fix the broiler when there was no heat. He provided the buildings for the orphanage. Orphanages. In his lifetime, it's estimated that at least 10,000 orphans were cared for because of George Mueller's prayer and faith. George Mueller lived in the time of the Philadelphian church, and he had this brotherly love inside of him that looked at those who were in need and said, We've got to do something, and I know somebody who has boundless resources. Oh, for God to raise up George Mueller's among us today. Oh, for God to make me a man of faith like that. George Mueller, in his lifetime, raised about 1,453,513 pounds, 13 shillings. That doesn't sound like very much, but you have to consider that this was back in the 1800s. 
If you, can, if you transfer this to American dollars today in current monetary value, it's been estimated that this is about $150 million to build these orphanages, to house these orphans, all in answer to prayer. Will you and I pray prayers like that? That God would open to us a door. That He would provide out of His boundless resources so that the Gospel can go forward with power. Because this is what we exist for. This is what Jesus said, I'm going to heaven. I have all authority. So you go and preach the Gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. It doesn't matter how big the vision is. If God has laid it on your heart, then pray. And He'll provide the resources for it. He will see the way forward. George Mueller talks about how this affected his relationship with God. He said this, Greater and more manifest nearness of the Lord's presence I have never had than when after breakfast there was no more means for dinner. I don't know about you, but when I face a challenge like that, I have a thousand orphans that I need to provide for and there's no more food for them. Rather than feeling close to God, sometimes I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? George Mueller said, I never felt closer to God than in that moment when there were no means for dinner and then the Lord provided for dinner for more than 100 persons. Or when after dinner, there were no means for tea and yet the Lord provided the tea and all this without one single human being having been informed about our need. Why should the sons and daughters of God be reluctant to pray when prayer is a key in the hand of faith to unlock heaven's storehouses where are treasured the boundless resources of omnipotence? I'm realizing I don't pray enough. And I'm realizing that too often my prayers are like being the steward Shebna. That I'm trying to build my own little kingdom. I'm praying for things that will help my life, that will fix my car, that will provide for my finances. When again and again in the Bible, what God is calling us to pray for is that He would open a door for the Word. That's what the key of prayer is especially for. To take the Gospel to the world. JoshuaProject.net is a website that maps the people groups of the earth that haven't gotten to hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ and they estimate that there are 7,000 people groups out there that have not heard the Gospel in a real way, in their language, and in their culture. And yet, you and I have been called to go, to preach the Gospel to all nations because of Him who has all authority in heaven and on earth. I don't want to be a Shebna. I want to be an Eliakim who's a faithful steward. Who's a faithful steward of this trust of the key of David that Jesus has trusted into our hands. Jesus has again and again said in the Gospels, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Ask and don't doubt in your heart and you'll receive. Ask in my name that it may glorify the Father. Ask, John 16.24, that your joy may be made full. I want to have the joy of George Mueller. I want to have the joy of seeing God answer prayers, of seeing God provide for my neighbors, of having a big dream of God reaching my neighborhood, my community, this state, this country, this world for Jesus. I want to see God open doors for His glory. 
Prayer is the key in the hand of faith that unlocks heaven's storehouses. Paul is the one who said, pray that God opens a door for the gospel. He also said elsewhere in the gospels, or Paul also wrote that they should pray that the word of God would go forth speedily. Are we praying for our missionaries? I want to keep praying for Brian Atwell. I got an email from him this past week, and things are tough in Bangkok, Thailand, that, that city where it's, what, over 80% are non-Christian and haven't gotten the chance to hear the gospel in their language. I want to pray for the Atwells as they're facing some tough decisions, they're facing some financial difficulties. I want to pray, I want to go, and I want to give. Friends, God is calling us to exercise this key of David that is given through the authority of Jesus Christ. The keys of the kingdom which He's entrusted to you and I. That ability to ask and we can receive. In the magazine, in, in, uh, sorry, in Manuscript Releases, Volume 18, it says, Prayer is the key that unlocks the storehouse of heaven. The churches have been losing their power. We must have faith in God. We must have a firmer dependence on Him who is the owner of the universe. Do we depend upon Him for everything? Do I depend upon Him for everything? Do I believe He is who He says He is? In conclusion, George Mueller writes this, My dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Remember, George Mueller didn't just go about this just for fun. He went about it so that your faith and my faith could be built in the God who still works miracles even in our day. My dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord, to trust in Him with all his heart, and to cast his burden upon Him and to call upon Him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. I want to live that life. Here's somebody giving us the invitation. Somebody who's experienced it for himself. Somebody who said the sweetest moment was when I didn't even know how to provide for the hundreds of orphans that God had trusted into my care. I want to know Jesus like that. I want to have the brotherly love of the Philadelphian church. If that's your desire, I just want to invite you again to just kneel with me as we pray and to ask that God stir that spirit of prayer here in our church, that God would compel our prayer meetings to be powerful times where revival takes place, that He would compel that hour of prayer to be meaningful times of prayer each Sabbath, that each of us would have special times in prayer together as a family, that we would specifically be praying for our neighbors, our, our family, and our friends who don't know Jesus. Father in heaven, we come to you on our knees asking that you, the God of the universe who has boundless resources, would first of all increase our faith. You would increase our expectancy to what you will do in answer to prayer. And God, I don't want to limit you this morning to what you're appealing to for our specific hearts. Lord, some of us may just be called this morning to pray for our neighbors more intensely. 
Some of us may be feeling a burden to reach this world in a way like George Mueller did and to, to step out in faith, calling upon you to provide the resources for a ministry that you have inspired. Some of us may be inspired to go as missionaries like William Carey. Father, I don't know what you're laying on our hearts, but I ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit this morning, that we wouldn't just go on with business as usual, because like it goes on to say in the Philadelphian church, behold, I am coming quickly. O Lord, while the door is still open, may we exercise that key of faith. May we be determined to walk out of here, not just to have been inspired by your word and by lives of men who live for you, but may we be inspired to live our lives in radical dependence, in constant prayer, in utmost focus on Jesus, who is the Almighty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.